0: Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water how to make sustainable irrigation can water bring peace how do you uh, keep water clean and, and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the u.s what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the Waterline Podcast is an initiative of Israel NewTech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. So check it out for everything you need to know about the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water. Search for Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hey guys! Coming up, I'm going to be in Fort Worth, Texas. Then Plano, Texas. The week after that, I'm uh, doing that's doing my regular show, and then uh, I'm doing a good trip um, in Dallas. The end of the month here. I'm also doing uh, I'm also doing it in Austin on uh, the 21st of February. And I will be doing it in Albuquerque on March 2nd. So if you know anyone in any of those areas, please spread the word for me and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I am talking with a professor of biological science here at Wichita State Mark Schneegert. thank you Mark for joining me today
1: all right my pleasure
0: I appreciate you finding the time to talk with me and um, and so so when you first reached out to me I didn't I, I, I wasn't sure exactly what you um, what you did uh, but then I looked into it and it was uh, uh, very interesting you well you do many different things I, I looked through <laughs> your papers and you've done. A wide range of things, including like Jack, some sort of exercise thing. Jack of, of all trades, thing, time, of all trades like uh, but um, uh, but one of the one of the uh, some of the work that you seem to be excited about currently is is you're studying kind of uh, uh, life on Mars and and what the that that is something. Is uh,
1: uh, that's that's the most fun project I would say of all the things that we do is looking at life in very salty places. Mm. and these salty conditions are similar to what we might find on Mars and we work with the group at jet propulsion laboratory through the planetary protection uh, group uh, trying to prevent or at least understand how life on earth could be transported to Mars on a spacecraft by accident I mean, we're not we're not trying to bring it with us we're uh- trying to look for life on other planets. So it's better if you don't bring it with you. And so we're working with them to try to understand what might tag along and what chances they might have to grow on Mars.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So uh, we get people to Mars or, or put uh, uh, put a rover there or something like that, and it has some sort of microbacteria or something like that that might be attached to it. And then next, exactly, next thing you know, exactly. there's a alien revolution. On Mars. Probably wouldn't happen that quickly. No, no little green men right away, <laughs>
1: but uh, if you're looking for life, you certainly don't want to bring it with you. That confuses the issues. Yeah,
0: yeah, of course. Uh, and
1: it's very hard to clean things in a way where you're certain that you're not bringing anything with you. Uh, the spacecraft are very expensive. Uh, you really can't touch them very much because they're so valuable that even the tiniest scratch could end up being hundreds of millions of dollars in delays and uh, retrofitting. So No pressure. uh, Yeah, there's no (laughs) pressure. Uh, They don't let me into the facility at all. Uh, But my friends can go in uh, at Jet Propulsion Laboratory and take some samples for us. And then we look to see what kind of bacteria are there and could they live under conditions that are similar to Mars. And we usually look at one or two conditions at a time, not everything all at once. And uh, we we do a lot of things with salty bugs. Uh, can they live at high salt and and not just table salt? Uh, we look at Epsom salts and uh, a variety of other salts, perchlorate salts, and uh, other things that you find on Mars.
0: Hmm. I mean, life isn't uh, isn't terribly abundant in uh, in salty regions like that, right? Well, what kind I, of stuff does grow there? Uh,
1: there are a lot of bacteria Hmm. that can grow in these salty places. You're you're not going to find plants or very much in the way of animal life, but uh, for the microbes, uh, many of them do very well and they turn out to be diverse environments that have complex communities of organisms that happen to do well in high salt.
0: Hmm. Um, that, that really highlights the challenges that NASA faces. That uh, of all the, I'd never even considered that of all the engineering problems and everything else they have to deal with, and then and then you get done with and go. Oh, we forgot about the microbes. It
1: it, it it turns out that cleaning the spacecraft to get them very clean is gets very expensive. There's a lot of steps. It takes a lot of labor, and so uh, the Viking spacecraft cleaned very very well. Um, And since then, uh, we've kind of stayed away from special regions where we think life could grow, kind of stayed away from water for the most part, Uh, except for the Mars Polar Lander, the Phoenix Lander. Uh, That landed on the ice cap. We knew that there'd be water there, so portions of that spacecraft, uh, the arm that reached down to the soil, was very well cleaned. But to do entire spacecrafts to that level uh, costs a lot of money and raises the cost of the missions. Uh, so we're, we're careful about where we bring the spacecraft right now, but eventually we're going to want to go to the most interesting places on Mars. Uh, but we want to make sure we're doing it right, right. before we go to those places.
0: Of course. And um, do you do uh, so, some work with... Um I saw you do some bio, how do you pronounce the bi- bioremediation of like pollutants? And
1: yeah, well, you know this is work that we've done in the lab uh, for many years. I did it before I came to Wichita State. And uh, we're interested mainly in um, uh, the kind of messes that you might make from uh, uh, petroleum mining or uh, working with crude oils and uh, those, kind, those uh, compounds. And there's lots of things in crude oil that are kind of hazardous to human health. And whenever you work with any material in very large quantities uh, over large areas, like we do with petroleum and oils and gasoline, there's going to be spells. You're going to lose some. You know, Every time you go to the gas station, there's that one little drop that kind of comes out and falls on the ground. Well, if everybody drops a drop down there, now all of a sudden you start accumulating compounds that may not be so healthy. Um, and so we're, we wanna clean those things up, understand how they move, understand how we can clean them up uh, using biological um, uh, sources, so uh, biological tools. So there's bacteria in the soil that can eat almost anything. It's a matter of encouraging them to grow when you need them to grow. And creating those conditions so that they'll clean up the messes for us, and so we want to understand those organisms, how they work, where we can find them, uh, and how we can get them to do the job for us.
0: That's uh, that's interesting, and we're. Do you do any of the stuff with, uh, you know, everyone's talking about like fracking these days and it's kind of the big industry yeah, that it, seems to it, be taking it is, off in Yeah, it the is US. a big
1: thing. And, and uh, although although a lot of people don't like the concept and think that um, there are better ways to do it or perhaps we shouldn't be doing this technique, uh, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. and. Um, if there's going to be some downside to it in terms of um, uh, making some kind of mess in the environment, uh, it'd be a good idea to be able to clean those things up and be able to, be able to work on that. So we've been looking at uh, microorganisms that can eat some of the organic materials that are in the wastewaters that come with fracking. Because with fracking, you pump water down into the ground, To help loosen up the oil and release more of that oil and gas. Uh, Well, a lot of that water comes back up to the surface and is recycled. But over time, you end up with a pool of wastewater that's very salty again, one of my interests uh, and oily. Mm. Uh, Not just oily, but also some of the compounds that they use for fracking, uh, some of the detergents or surfactants, the slippery things that they'll put down into the water to help rocks move around to release more oil. Um, Some of those things need to be degraded as well. They end up in these wastewaters. And uh, so you might have a surface pond that has some of this material. It's really, really salty. And we have a lot of salty bugs in our freezer that can eat lots of different things. So we're looking at a process where we can use our salty microbes to help eat up this fracking waste, or at least get the organics cleaned up out of it. Uh, in an inexpensive way that it's room temperature with biologicals very safe uh, to help clean up these things. If we're going to continue to do it, let's be able to clean it up at least.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, do you do any work with uh, biofuel at all?
1: Uh, we do biofuels too. Um, there was a, a project that came through the lab uh, funded by National Science Foundation uh, through a program called EPScore, which is a uh, block grants to certain states. And so we were part of that project looking at uh, kind of solar energy to liquid fuel conversion uh, using nanotechnologies. And so there was, uh, there were uh, maybe 50 scientists in different labs that were involved in this project. Uh, We had a small corner of that project and we were looking at algal biodiesel. And uh, we had there's, there's a long way to go, I think, before algal biodiesel really hits the mainstream. And,
0: and uh, can, uh, you, can you talk a little bit about what that is exactly? It's basically it, well, algae? Algae. Kind of?
1: Yeah, these are, these are algae like you'd find in a pond. I mean, mm. these are green algae that you'd find in a pond or perhaps the ocean. And uh, some of them will accumulate fats, lipids. They'll accumulate these fats that we can use to make diesel fuel. So we do a small chemical conversion on these fats, and it becomes diesel fuel, like for a truck, mm-hmm. or it becomes jet, fu- jet fuel for an airplane. Uh, but so these algae will accumulate a lot of this lipid, a lot of this fat, if you do it right, this oil. And uh, so we're working with some of those lipid, some of those lipid-producing uh, algae, and growing them up to see if we can make uh, enough at a reasonable cost to make it a viable process the challenge that that we find with the algae is if you're going to grow them in the light and use sunlight energy which is a great thing because you get the energy for free Mm. and the algae will then grow and produce this oil for you um, they need to be in very shallow ponds so the ponds are maybe 10 inches deep uh, and they have to be very very broad and very wide like you know, large portions of Arizona or New Mexico, someplace warm and sunny. And if you have a shallow open pool, open pond in Arizona, New Mexico, with the sun shining on it, you're going to lose water and evaporate water out of that pond very quickly. And it turns out that there's not a lot of water out there in the desert where it's warm and sunny. So this kind of hurts the process. The water costs so much that it's hard to make oil this way. Hmm. And so... You can take the whole culture, and instead of having an open pond, put it in a jar, You know, put it in a reactor, some sort of glass uh, tube where it gets the sunlight. But then you're building a really large engineered system, and it's very expensive to get that started. And the algae tend to grow on the glass, so they block the light. And there's a lot of technical problems to it. Uh, so none of these have really been done very commercially. Uh, What we've been looking at is another way to go about it. We've been growing the algae in the dark. So we don't have to worry about having a shallow pool. We don't have to worry about bioreactor. We can just do it in the same fermenter that you make ethanol in, same kind of stainless steel fermenter, and do it in the dark and feed them sugars of some kind. Now, you're not getting the light energy anymore. You're getting sugar energy. Uh, So it's less efficient from that perspective. But There are a lot of sources of sugars that we're now using for ethanol. These can then be used now to make biodiesel through algae. Uh, We can look at grasses and do the lignocellulosic, when you get all that waste biomass, the straw, and all of those things. You can treat that with an enzyme and release sugars from it. And so now you're taking trash, waste material, and making it into sugars that you feed to algae, and they make diesel for you. So I, I think that taken to, the, taken to fruition, this could be a new industry for Kansas. Mm. Um, there's, uh, there's not many people doing this now in the dark because doing it in the light seems like such an obvious thing to do. But they've been doing that for a long time, and nobody's making a lot of money at it. There aren't big commercial processes doing it. Perhaps this will be a way to go, and so we're looking down that route
0: so this is very new
1: it last few years, yeah
0: okay, and but probably a ways off from uh-
1: Everything's everything's as far as the money will fund you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was th- going to ask. It gets a lot shorter if there's more money. Right, right. That's the way it works. Yeah.
0: So, so it, do, does the funding go up when, like, oil prices go up or, or do you see any uh, it,
1: kind of there, fluctuation? There is. There is certainly. Uh, we worked, uh, well, I worked with Chevron for a number of years and with some of the other oil companies. And depending on the price of oil and other products – Uh, Their interest in certain research projects will shift. Hmm. So if the price of oil goes down, they're less interested, let's say, in upgrading crude oils, the really, really heavy asphalt kind of crude oils. Um, They don't make very good gasoline. Uh, It's more expensive to get good gasoline out of there that's clean So if the price of oil is is lower, they're less interested in extracting this oil than if the price of oil is higher, Mm. then it makes more sense to go through the process. So you do see some things like that. Uh, With the federal agencies, it's a big ship. They turn fairly slowly, so you don't see big shifts in funding patterns. Uh, at the national agencies, unless there's, unless there's a very pressing scientific need like uh, cyber terrorism uh, prevention and infrastructure. And then they'll turn and rapidly say, we need scientists to work in this area, let's move to this area right now. Most of the other things we work on are going to take a long time. Hmm. Curing cancer, we're making progress, but it's going to take more than a couple of years. Uh, and so these are broad projects that go on for decades uh, with, with many, many man hours going towards them. Uh, and those funding levels don't fluctuate that much with a big increase for cancer, and we expect some more uh, as people focus on these important issues. Do you study cancer at all? Uh, we don't do a lot of work with that. In, in the past, we've done some outreach work with high school students where we we're looking at prairie plants and extracting compounds to look for things that might be antibiotics or things that might be anti-cancer drugs. Uh, So we have done some work in that area, but uh, we're not really quite a cancer lab here. Uh, Down the hall, there's cancer labs.
0: I see. I I did see that you do some outreach work with uh, going into local high schools and getting students involved and it looks like you have kind of teachers writing papers with students sometimes uh, we
1: we had a we had a program for several years through National Science Foundation called GK12 and it allowed us to take Graduate students in the sciences and move them out into high school classrooms, uh, so they weren't teachers, they weren't instructors, they were students that are more advanced that were in a classroom talking to younger students, and you know we brought in uh, a number of uh, uh, a number of people of color and other demographics kind of match. The demographics of the schools that we were going into. And students were asked, how did you get to where you are? How can I become a scientist? And that was part of what we wanted to do. Uh, but we also uh, got with the science teachers at these schools. And it turns out a lot of the science teachers just happen to be teachers by chance. They're, they're really actually good research scientists that ended up in teaching and so then I come to them and say how'd you like to do research science and many of them just jump up and they just love the idea of doing these long-term projects that are real science that we publish in scientific journals um we're not rediscovering that chlorophyll is green we're doing new things and we've published a couple of papers with them already and we continue to work with some of the high school students the grant program ended uh, but uh, these teachers are involved. Uh, one of the teachers started a, um, a science cafe series in town. Uh, she and one of my other students that was involved with that project uh, run science cafes here in Wichita at the Donut Hole. Um, I think it's the first or second Monday of each month they run these uh, science cafes because reaching out to the public, it's critical to what we do. Uh, we, don't get, uh, we don't get funded. Uh, we don't get to do the projects that are important. Uh, for people here in the United States without folks around us understanding what we're doing and realizing that it's valuable. And I can tell you that, you know, uh, working to cure cancers, everybody's going to agree that's valuable. If I were to pick out a detail of one of the projects for that, you'd be like, why are they doing that? It's all part of this broader story. Uh, So, you know, we work, they're asking microbiologists and biologists now to solve energy crisis, biologists. We're solving, of course, medical and cancer and health. We're cleaning up the environment. So they're asking biologists to do a lot of stuff nowadays in the life sciences and, um, and these things are important to the general public, and we need them to understand how we're spending their money. Um, it's important that they understand that you know, when we're studying stress in plants, we're not worried about whether they're going to have a nervous breakdown. Stress means they're not getting enough water and they're drying out, and that's what stress means to a scientist. Right, right, right. So, you know, getting that getting that a point across to people.
0: No, I I, I like the idea saying? of a plant having a nervous having break. a nervous breakdown.
1: Uh, there was a story years ago. They made a big deal about plant stress that we're studying plant stress, and they're like, "Why would we study their psychology?" They don't even have, It's like no, it's about water Uh, and the planet's drying because it's getting warmer and it's drying. (laughs) That must Uh, be frustrating to have. So we run into these things all the time, and you know, and as scientists, we're not trained in outreach. We're not trained in talking to the public typically, Um, and so if I meet somebody on a plane and they ask me, so what do you do? I'll say I'm a scientist. I work on hypersaline environments, and I get two words into it, and they're like. I don't even know what you're talking about anymore. That's really nice. But if I say I'm working on a cure for cancer or I'm working on a new fuel source to get us off foreign oil, mm. they're like, well, that's important. These are All the right. things that I'm interested in. And I'm like, oh, well, that's what we're doing. We just don't explain it very well. Sometimes we we lose that broader picture and get down into these details of what we're doing on a daily basis. And so you know, I like doing the outreach things, a lot of fun, and uh, certainly working with all those young people is, uh, is very exciting for me.
0: Well, you just gave me a great idea because I'm often on planes and people ask me what I do, and then I reluctantly tell them that I'm a stand-up comedian, and then there's a million uncomfortable questions right. that often come along with that. I mean, sometimes very fun conversations, sure, too, but sure. sometimes there's some very uh you know and it's it's a lot of the same questions over right. and over again. I, so from now on I'm going microbiologist. you're solving all the problems in the world <laughs> and, uh... so so do you as as someone who is uh, I'm trying to do um you know I'm not a scientist but mm-hmm. I am trying to do science outreach. I would very much like more of the general pub- public to be interested in science. Do you sure. have any you have any tips for me?
1: Uh, at, no, at all, that might not be a very fair question. But. I, you know, again, I think, I think giving them information about problems that they find important. And I mm. think we know some of the big problems that are facing humanity, that are facing us here in the United States. Uh, and scientists are working to solve these problems. And uh, oftentimes it doesn't look like what we're doing directly relates to that problem. But in the grand scheme of things, it does. And remember, science, uh, the way we do science, it's like a giant mosaic. Mm -hmm. And so you have all these little tiles. And everybody puts a little tile up on the mosaic until it starts to make a picture. And then we can start to look at this picture. So I'll work on a tiny little corner. Somebody else will work on a little corner. And eventually, we'll start to put those pieces together to make broader theories to be able to develop new drugs, to be able to come up with uh, processes that are going to fix the oil crisis, that are going to fix the pollution process, that'll fix all of the problems that we find today. We think many of these are tractable with biology, and certainly with the other sciences. We we work closely with chemistry, geology, engineering. Uh, we all work together in interdisciplinary groups trying to answer these problems. But I think I think making getting the public to understand that. Um, that science isn't a, uh, it's not a way of thinking, it's not a religion, it's not a mindset. Science is a tool. Hmm. It's a set of techniques that we use to help us understand the real world. And is the real world really here? I mean, you can get into all these metaphysical arguments, but we get physical evidence, we use that physical evidence to make conclusions, you make predictions. We make you predictions. replicate things. Right, you make
0: them falsifiable. But we
1: never, we never prove anything, right? right? We never prove anything. We always just get things that suggest very strongly or convince us that we're on, that we're very close to the truth. But none of us will ever come out and say that we've completely solved any problem because somebody might run an experiment that shows that maybe our answer is not the perfect answer. Newton was right until Einstein showed that he was wrong. And is Newton kind of right and Einstein and Einstein, you know, and, and Einstein kind of right? Now, Newton's completely wrong because he didn't understand. And Einstein's right. But he's wrong too, right? right. The next guy's going to come out. Yeah, it's more like New-
0: Newton else. was kind of correct within the models that he was working with.
1: Right. Sort of. And kind so of. our science is always like that. You're right. always working within some framework of data or information that you have. But... You know, when you start, and one of the things I think the public doesn't understand very very well is the idea of statistics mm-hmm. and how statistics help us feel more confident in the answers that we get. So when we say that things are statistically significant, usually means that that answer is going to come out 95% of the time. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the answer that we believe that it is. But there is some chance that it won't come out that way. And depending on what your statistic is, that could be a one in a trillion, or that could be one in a hundred, that you have some uncertainty. So there's always some uncertainty, but if you get information and you get data that says that, well, you know, nine nine billion times it'll come out this way, and one time it'll come out another way, you have a lot of confidence in that. And so, we never prove it to a hundred percent. I think only I think only preachers can do that. I don't think scientists really can. Uh, but boy, we can get to where it's like one chance in a billion or one chance in a trillion, and then we feel like we have the right answer.
0: Right. Yeah. That's uh, one of the things that is is definitely a difference between um, a scientist's mindset and and a lot of people's kind of. Uh, Mindsets or or opinions on things is doing this podcast. One of I've I've learned that one of uh, scientists' favorite things to say is, I don't know. Like, I hear that all the time. I don't, they have, even if you know, I ask someone who studies plants about something about plants, and they're like, Oh, not my area. I'm not gonna.
1: (laughs) Where it's it's very, very detailed information, right? So, you're not gonna go to a podiatrist for a problem in your ear. Even though they're both physicians and they know a lot of stuff, I'd rather go to the foot doctor for the foot thing. <laughs> right. uh, so we're all really careful about not saying things that aren't true. Uh, and we want to stay in our air of expertise as best we can. But at the same time, we, we also are constantly hedging our bets as scientists. We always do this um, uh, because we know about statistics and we know 100% certainty probably can't occur for anything in the physical universe.
0: Right. Right?
1: You, you, know, you can go through Plato's cave and that whole thinking, and you can talk about, is the table really here? Can we prove that the table's here? It's just my perception of the table or the data I get about right. But I think we'd all agree that the table's here. Yeah, that certainly uh, suits us well would,
0: enough to navigate the world as right, well. As we right, right, and to. so
1: so we do that, and our theories are like that. They're not like theories on some murder mystery show. They're theories like I drop a pen and it falls to the ground. There's gravity, and you know these. We call it still the theory of gravity, but it's not really a theory, right? It's more of a principle, right? And that kind of semantics. I guess there are some folks that get deeply involved in that. Most scientists don't. Um, We are just trying to get closer to the truth. We're trying to get data that helps us answer questions so that we can solve problems like cancer and pollution and all of these other things. That's what we're trying to get to.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a very good example of why I've been um, intentionally kind of staying away from physics and theoretical physics in general on this podcast <laughs> until we know. Hey, I, yeah. I think eventually, like a, a season or two from now, I'm going to get in. It is very interesting sure. stuff. Sure. We know a lot. But,
1: we know a lot, but they're always going to dance. Yeah I, yeah, I think that's just the nature of science, and right. and I don't think that the general public recognizes that. Yeah, I think they believe that because it's science, we should know everything. Exactly to the point, exactly to the number, and be able to have theories that are unassailable for all time. That's not the way science works.
0: Uh, well, it's, uh, it's, well. I don't know if if this was necessarily the cause, but it seems like in in kind of the the history of uh, the, like the early foundations of of some of the scientific think when, when people started thinking a little more scientifically, it was it was when people started realizing oh there are things that we don't know that are worth knowing before that it was like you know everything was in um your bible or your parents told you or whatever and if you wanted to know something about how ladybugs worked or whatever and no one knew well then it wasn't worth it wasn't for you to know right right (laughs) well
1: you know know, science science says a as a discipline like that really predates biblical. They already knew a right. lot of science. There's a lot of science in the Bible. They knew how to do fermentation, mm-hmm. make wine and bread. They knew about quarantine. They would they sent uh, Miriam out of the tribe when she had uh, uh So there, there's a lot of that already in the Bible. So it predates it when you get into these older uh, cultures. But you know, a lot of the science started out with natural philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people were just trying to understand the world, understand their role in the world, understand their place in the world, and how does the world work? And so, a lot of it started with that. Now, how we do science today, where we falsify hypotheses, where we have a, the scientific method—that developed over a longer period of time. But um, you know, a lot of the questions we don't follow the sci- You know, that the scientific method that you learn in school is a nice way to teach it when you actually have to do science in the real world, all of your answers come out gray. There's typically no black and white answers. Everything's gray and asks another question. So you get to a certain point and say, now I understand more about this, but now there's five new things that I don't understand, that I wouldn't have known had I not gone down this path. And so we go down these paths in certain directions trying to find more information. Uh, But you never know that you're going to get to that endpoint that you're looking for. You may take a side route. You know, there's a story that I tell my, um, uh, my classes. Um, there's um, uh, there was a guy, is out, it uh, late at night, he's under the street lamp, he's looking around in the street looking for something. So somebody comes over and he says, what are you looking for? And he goes, well, I lost my keys. And he's like, well, I'll help you find them. So they're looking around, they're looking around, you know, and, and they can't find them. And so the guy goes, now, your keys, where did you drop them? And he points like far off in the distance, he goes, way over there. And he goes, "Then why are we looking over here?" He goes, "It's under the street light. It's the only place we can see." Yeah.
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Right? And so this is right. kind of where you start science. I want to get out there, but I got to be in the place where I know something already. Right. Uh, and then we just build on there.
0: Um, um yeah, and, and it, it's also funny kind of I mean w- when you start to learn a little bit of the but it, it, I mean, I'm still uh, at the very very sure, beginning sure. of of my scientific understanding but but so much of it is um is so counterintuitive when you talk about uh, the power of uh, statistics and understanding statistical mm-hmm. reasoning I most people on the street, if you if you flip a coin with them, and you know nine times in a row it lands on tails, they're going to assume that next time is good, they're, they're due for it to right, land on heads. You know, you see this in the casinos right, right. and stuff a, a lot, and uh, and it's just very difficult to get through to people. That it, it is,
1: it is, and and you know you can look at things, and I see this in in high school or junior high school science fair projects all the time. They'll do an experiment, they'll do it, you know, twenty times, and 12 times it comes out one way, eight times it comes out another way. And so they say, well, came out 12 times this way. That must be the answer. I'm like, no. depends how much variation there was. And the, the yes and no may actually be the same thing with statistics. Mm. Um, and so it, it is counterintuitive. And then the biological world is counterintuitive. Uh, if you think that you can reason a common answer to a biological question – there's a good chance you're going to be wrong. And I tell my students this all the time. You know, if you're talking to a group and they ask you a question, you don't know the answer. Don't think about it logically and say, well, it must be this way, I think. Mm -hmm. Because biological systems don't work like that. They'll work in ways that are way more complex and just backwards from what you might expect. They're not logical systems like that. They're created through this process of chance and Um, and randomness, and a lot of the things ended up being kind of backwards from what you'd expect to be the efficient way to do it in biological systems. So you got to be really careful with these things. Uh, In terms of predicting how things might go or what answers might be, we are totally focused on the evidence, the physical evidence. We run experiments, and then we run experiments to make sure our experiments were done right, and then we do experiments to make sure those experiments were done right. And then we go back and look at the data and say, okay, so we think we did the experiment right, and this is what the data is. What does that tell us? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it tells us nothing. And sometimes it gives us a hint as to where we might go, and we could be wrong. So, you know, over time, though, many people will run the experiment. I'll publish it, and other people will try and do it themselves and say, I don't believe it. Let me do it. And they'll try it themselves. They'll come out with the same answer. Or maybe they'll come out with a different answer. And they'll say, you know, you didn't do your experiment right because you had the door open when you did it. Can't have the door open when you do it. you got to How- have the door closed. I'm like, I never even thought about the door. What does the door have to do with it? And they'll be like, well, the wind comes in. You know, th- th- these are very, very complicated things we are trying to understand. And How- we do our best, but they're very complicated.
0: How often does that end up happening It's like every you? day. This is every day. This <laughs> is every day. Of- <laughs> Is that uh, very frustrating, or is that part of the fun? Of, well, uh, or part, you have
1: to... I, I don't know if you'd say fun, but... You have to be a certain kind of person to be able to stay in a research lab. And, uh-huh. you know, I'll get get—I'll get some students, they're just straight-A students, everything's gone well for them their whole life, and they've never failed at anything. They come into my lab and get like 10 failures in a row. The experiment didn't run right, they made a mistake, they didn't get answers that made any sense, their, con- their controls didn't work... And so it can be very frustrating. Look, you're trying to do something that's never been done on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. And it's not just think about it and do it. You know, it's kind of like being an artist. You know, If you're a sculptor, you have to imagine that sculpture in your mind. You have to build the whole thing in your head. But then you still have to get a chisel and carve it out of rock. That is hard to do. And science is the same way. I have a lot of brilliant ideas, you know, somewhat <laughs> brilliant ideas. But we have to go and be able to do it in the laboratory. Within right. a budget, within current science, within, with the machinery we have and with the skills we have. And so it's very frustrating. So you're trying to do things that have never been done before. All the easy things were done 100 years ago. There's only the hard things left. It's very hard to do these things. So um, there's lots of failure. It's, it's kind of I don't know if it's failure as much as walking down a path and learning what doesn't work. But to the people working in the lab, it sure feels like failure. They didn't get the data. They didn't answer the question. They have to do another experiment think about it a different way. And so this, you continue to do that. A PhD thesis, you might do that for five years in a row. Not get any real answers, only kind of get answers. Think you know what the answer is. And then you'll get enough data where you go like, okay, I know the answer now. I really think I know the answer. And you'll go back and redo all the experiments in like three months, the good experiments, the right way. And get good, clean data that really shows that that's the answer. Or not. Mm. You can get to that point and still be like, gosh, I thought the answer was A, but it turns out to not be A. I don't know what it is. But that's science. I mean, it makes it fun uh, in some respects, but at the same time, it's a very crooked path. And it can be very frustrating, especially for young people because they they take it personally. Mm. Oh, you know, the experiment failed. It must be me. I'm a bad scientist. And it's not. It's just the nature of the business. It's hard to do.
0: Yeah, this is, I mean – I guess a a a pretty shaky parallel with with my my job and and being a stand-up comic but probably one out of a 100 ideas or jokes that I have maybe maybe one out of 20 I'll I'll take a chance and try and out try on out, stage right, right. and then maybe one out of 20 of those or one out of 10 of those is going to work. And in the beginning, that did take a little time to, to get used to. Right. And then you'd say something and it wouldn't work and you'd be like, well, this audience sucks or something. Right, you know? right, right.
1: It's not really, you say, you know, you can, you can blame it on them, you can blame it on yourself, I'm a right. bad comedian. Uh, but it's really some things work and some things don't. And you just go down the path and, and hope that we get things to work.
0: And- so before we get into a little more of your work, um, I'm going to backtrack a hair and ask you a question. And feel free to take a pass on this question. I don't mean to like make things political or whatever, but it just sure. kind of stuck in my mind that I, that idea of of, uh, of of the stressed plants in the news. When you see something like that in the news, do you think that do you think that the people putting that out there actually know what's happening and are 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 just manipulating that for uh, their or or is there a little i'm not saying i'm not like a big conspiracy guy or anything like that i'm just saying like uh, if you're a
1: politician on one side of things that's uh, yeah you know i i i don't know what people's motivations are i think i think that a lot of people don't understand science Mm -hmm. they don't understand the nature of science they don't know they don't understand how scientists talk about science they don't know the terminology. And, uh, you know, they can get very confused about what we're doing right. and and report things uh, in a way that's not accurate. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I certainly had, had science stories that I've been part of in the past that had inaccuracies in them when they actually went out into the field uh, when they were released. Uh, it's hard not to do when you're dealing with things that are so complicated uh, and you're dealing with reporters that just don't have a background in that. So, uh, you know, some of, the, some of the science you might get on some of the major TV networks and things like that may not be the best science at that moment, uh, or at least not interpreted in the best way. So I think there's that part of it. And then, of course, there are some people that are you know motivated by their personal ideology about the nature of the universe and the way it should be and will latch on to different things, either to uh, support their point or to discredit scientists in general. Right. Uh, there's there's certainly a you know, um, science deniers out there that are um, that believe that they uh, understand the physical universe in a way that scientists don't, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and believe that scientists have uh, you know uh, have some sort of agenda that we're trying to push. Uh, that's contrary to theirs, and, and I would say, uh, well, there may be somebody like that on the planet. I don't know any of them, and. Uh, We're just trying to do the best job we can uh, Mm -hmm. to answer these questions that are really important. I think most of us are in it for that. Um, It's not about keeping our labs open or about making ourselves famous. In fact, most of us don't want any sort of fame like that, um, really. Uh, We just want to do some good science and solve some problems. So, you know, there's there's people that can take this and manipulate it and twist it. They can take anything you say and twist it. but. Uh, I'd, I'd be careful about what I hear and read in the, in the media oftentimes uh, uh, because th- they are trying to sell newspapers, and that's okay. It's okay that they want to do that for profit business. That's okay. Uh, but recognize that they're going to uh, grandstand on things like the uh, mm-hmm. uh, vaccines causing autism, right. uh, the alar scare with apples uh, a few years ago. Um, these these turned out to be not accurate
0: right. scientifically.
1: And yet people listen to this, and now we see the rise of pertussis, uh, whooping cough here in Kansas, because folks aren't getting vaccinated because they're afraid <laughs> of something that doesn't really exist. Yeah. And once it gets out there, it's really hard to convince people that, that that story wasn't accurate because it was, it was so uh, overdone in the media. So, uh, you know, you hear West Nile virus and mosquitoes every day during the summer. There's only a handful of people that really get sick from it. They get the, they get the brain damage and things like that. Most people get a – they might not even know they have it at all. They get a mild flu-like thing and it goes away. So should that be on the news every single day worrying people about uh, mosquitoes uh, in that particular context – Maybe maybe not but you know you got to be careful when you see these things um, right. blown up and ask yourself, is that really true right and, uh, do I really want to act on this?
0: Um, yeah it's 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 a little bit I mean I I often want to blame the news for this, but part of it's you know they need ratings and part of what humans attach to is these very novel, <laughs> these very highly salient, right, right. exciting things it sells it's, newspapers uh, it and, sells us, it's and, the
1: most extreme way to express yeah. it oftentimes, and that gets the attention, yeah, um, and I understand why they do it, mm-hmm. certainly if you know if I had to make money on stories I'd be doing this too right. but
0: it's not very representative of reality, though. And
1: oftentimes, it's not. Yeah. Oftentimes, it's not. Either it's glossed over, or it's factually incorrect, or uh, you know, they just don't give enough information to yeah. really make good stories. So, just be aware of that. And um, uh, but, and, and I'm sure that there's some people out there twisting things to you know to make their own agenda, or whatever it happens to be, their own ideology, and twisting the science to support. Uh, you know, in our case, we might put out. Um, uh evolutionary science and other folks might turn that around into anti-evolutionary science in some way and so the same data can be looked at in different right. ways and interpreted differently by different people um yeah and and,
0: and it is i mean it, it is a, a good point and, and to the, in those people's defense sometimes a lot of times that can very well be just the challenge of understanding this stuff. I'm Knowing this podcast, I get a wide range of people, but but even when I'm, you know, I'll, I'll read a person's book that they've written, and mm-hmm. I'll be interviewing them about their book that I read and yeah. took notes on and was interested in, and it will be in something that I uh, like you know, evolutionary psychology or something mm-hmm. that I'm, I feel a little more comfortable in. And, uh, and I'll, I'll set something up. I'll be like, so this and this and this happens. And they're like, oh, no, you have that all backwards. Right, right. And I, I know a fair amount more about it than your average person. You know, person. The, um,
1: the, the average scientist that's getting money from National Institutes of Health, they don't get their first research grant where they actually get some money until they're in their 40s mm-hmm. or late 30s. Uh, that's a lot of training yeah. before you get the keys to the car, kind of. (laughs) Right. Um, So we go through a lot of training. It's not just the four years of college. It's the five, six years of PhD. It's another five or six years of postdoc on top of that. At least I postdoc for 11 years myself because I loved being in the laboratory. Um, And then even as an assistant professor, you're still learning how to do this business. Uh, so, the concepts are very complicated. How to go about it is very complicated and you know i just I just ask people in the public who may have some understanding of it, uh, but not a full understanding of what we do to kind of step aside a bit and let us do our business mm-hmm. um, uh, we 're trying to solve big problems and it 's very hard to do. It costs a lot of money uh, it 's very hard to do these things. We need a lot of students and other people to work with us and We just want to go ahead and do that business, and maybe we're not the best at communicating the science all the time to general public. But uh, you know, we want to solve these problems, and uh, or be
0: supportive. Just don't get in the way of things. Just
1: don't get in the way. Mm -hmm. Recognize that it it, that you know we're putting less into the research endeavor than a lot of countries are on a a per capita basis, on Mm -hmm. a GDP basis. We don't look very good next to a lot of other countries, and. You know, for many years, they always talked about, National Science Foundation always talked about technology transfer from the United States to other countries. The last 10 years, it's been transferred from other countries to the United States. Uh, we are not going to be the technological leader anymore if we continue to underfund technology and underfund research and Apple might be making a lot of money, and companies that do technology might be doing well. That doesn't mean that the research effort in these areas, which mainly occurs at universities and national laboratories across the United States, that doesn't mean that those laboratories are being funded in a way that uh, supports our economy, Mm -hmm. that's going to get us. We want an intelligent economy. We want an an innovation economy. We want an economy based on technology. You don't get that without research. And the things that we do today may not bear fruit for 20 years or 30 years. That's the nature of research. But you have to do them, or 30 years from now you don't have that, and you're starting all over again, like we're doing with antibiotics. Right. uh, And how far behind we are with the development of antibiotics, because we kind of dropped it for a generation. Uh, We can't do that. We can't keep cutting the budget for National Science Foundation or limiting their funds or for National Institutes of Health and expect these problems to be solved. Right. Uh, it's it's time-consuming. We need a lot of labor. It's expensive. And we uh, need funding to do it or else we're not going to get the cures for cancer that people want.
0: Yeah, often people will just be like, ah, oh, they'll figure it out. <laughs> you know, we fund. will. We will. But you got to give us the resources to <laughs> right. do
1: it. And it's not so that I can keep my operation going. It's so that we can actually solve these problems right. in, a, in a reasonable amount of time.
0: All right, so uh, so we'll get into a little more of your work. This might be a good point, too, and, and now I'm a hair nervous because I'm remembering the thing that I forgot to remind you about ahead of time. Did I email you about the nonprofit?
1: You did mean? say that uh, you could okay. ask about a nonprofit, uh, uh, yes. Yeah,
0: do you have, do you have a nonprofit uh, that you would like to You know, to there's,
1: there's a number that I, that I enjoy that I think do really good work. Uh, one that I've been involved with for a long time is Save the Children, and uh, I've been uh, contributing funds there for 35 years, I think, since I was in college. And it's, it's a relatively small amount each month. And, you know, I, in the beginning, I kind of liked having a picture of the kid and I could send cards back and forth and things like that. And then I kind of realized that I'm really not supporting this child. I'm supporting his entire community. Mm-hmm. He's just a representative, a face for this community. And I've been through four or five communities already over the years. And what I what I like about the program is that uh, well, it's focused on children and, and communities and helping children, of course. Uh, but People uh, aren't
0: going to argue with this. Ah, like, uh, oh, we don't need yeah, this. You stuff. know, a,
1: a friend of mine works uh, for UNICEF in Tanzania. Uh, UNICEF does great work out there too. So I mean, there's lots of agencies that that help children. Uh, I've just been with Save the Children for uh, for a long time, but. Uh, you know they have they have low overhead costs. They uh, they put a lot out in the field. And one thing that I like is sometimes they finish. Like they work with the community and get it to a certain point where it's functioning much better and the kids are getting education, and they move on to another country or another community. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a forever thing where they're just, just continuing to throw money into the same pot. They do make progress and move on and then say, well, sorry, you're going to have to change kids now because we're moving out of uh, this region and moving into this other region. So I've I've liked that, and it was, it was even as a college student, I think back then it was – maybe $24 a month. And now maybe it's 30 or $32 a month. And even as a college student, I was able to afford that. And it's just a little thing that I, it just continuously do forever now. That's and, wonderful. And, and throw some funds there.
0: And, uh, and listeners of course can always go to the, here we are podcast.com website and there'll be a link on there, or you can just look it up yourself as well. Um, I just like to encourage that on the show. And uh, so, so, uh, getting back into your work, and speaking of you doing a wide range of topics, right, right. Um, right now you're you're doing some work with uh, bacteria on bird feathers or something. Bird uh, feathers, <laughs> yes. Um, how how did you get into this?
1: Well, uh, there's um, uh, one of my friends on faculty here in the department came in the same year I did, and we said, you know, everybody's going to always compare us because we came in the same time. Let's be fast friends and mm-hmm. let's work. So we just like to hang out and work together. And so we had done a project earlier um, on uh, West Nile virus uh, in birds, uh, in wild birds, and how prevalent is the West Nile virus, vi- uh, the, the uh, organism. And so we were looking at birds that uh, migrate. And we looked at birds that kind of stay where they are, resident birds. And Uh, It turns out in our study that the migrant birds didn't have very much West Nile virus exposure. Either that or they died from it and we didn't find the birds. Uh, And the resident birds turned out to have a lot of this West Nile virus. Uh, Cardinals and things like that turned out to have higher levels than uh, the American tree sparrow, let's say. Uh, and so that project kind of ended. We just did it for fun. And so we were trying to think what we could do next. We just want to do something kind of out of our discipline because we're, I'm a microbiologist, he's an ornithologist. We're separated, it's a pretty big distance in biology. Uh, so we had talked about uh, bacteria that bird guts in their intestine. And the bird intestines pretty much are like human intestines. They're an animal it's very similar. So I didn't think that that was the best uh, project. And so I was just sitting in his office one day, and I took a – he had one of the top journals uh, in the field sitting on his desk. And I just started thumbing through this magazine while we're talking, this scientific journal. And I found a microbiology paper. And I'm looking at it. I'm going – and it was on bird feathers. It was a microbiology of bird feathers. And I'm like, I could do better science than this. (laughs) <laughs> this is not the best paper I've ever written. Mm-hmm. I've ever read. I mean. right. It's not the best paper I've ever read. Um, I think we could do a better job than this. If you bring a real microbiologist in, you collect the birds, I'll do the bacteria side. And so we started this, um, uh, this collaboration. And initially we were going to look at preen oils. Um, this is this, uh, the glands have, uh, the birds have a little gland back by their tail and they'll press this gland, and this oil will come out, and then they'll smear that on their feathers. It's part of their sanitation behaviors, preening. They're covering their feathers with oil. It keeps them waterproof, and, and it has antimicrobial properties. It can kill some bacteria, they say. So we were going to study that. turns out really hard to work with that material. And, you know, we're just doing this for fun. We don't have a grant to really do it, so we're not controlled by, you know, we said we would do these things. And so we said, well, let's just isolate some bacteria from these feathers, see who we have, and then we can try and test them with the preen oils later. And so a student went down that road and um, isolated several hundred different types of bacteria uh, from these bird feathers. Uh, And these are wild-caught juncos, uh, the dark-eyed junco, very, very common bird, one of the most common birds in North America. And it's a long-distance migrant too. And so uh, we started to ask the question, Who's there? What bacteria are on the feathers? And uh, we use uh, genetic techniques. We look at DNA sequences and things like that to determine who's there. Um, And so the student did his project and we characterize these organisms and he wrote his thesis and he goes off to a job. And then I sit down to write the publication. And, you know, when you're going to write a paper and put it out in the scientific literature, you start to look at things very, very closely, because now you're making a permanent record of what you're saying. You want to make sure every word, every character is correct. And so I start looking at this in more and more detail, and I start looking at some of the organisms that we had isolated, some of the bacterial types that we had gotten, who they are, and learning more about them. And I find that a lot of them are bacteria that you find in soil, And a lot of them are bacteria that you find on leaves or on bark. Eh, That's expected. The birds are ground feeders. They're on the ground a lot. They fly up in the trees. Uh, But when when I look more closely at them, I found that many of the bacteria are in classes that are hazardous to plants, that are pathogenic, that cause disease in plants. Um, Some of them cause disease in crop plants, like wheat and rye and other grasses. And there are tubes that run up and down the plant that carry water, the xylem and phloem, and they grow inside those tubes and clog the tubes up. And then Mm. the plants wilt or they get some other disease. Um, So we found a number of organisms that cause plant disease, or at least it seemed like they did. We hadn't tested them yet, but we had seen them. And then we saw a number of organisms that people say are beneficial to plants. That help to kill the disease organisms or help to kill fungi that hurt the plants. So sometimes, just like on your skin, you have a lot of bacteria that protect you from invaders. Mm -hmm. They're used to living on your skin. And when the invader comes in, they say, hey, I'm I'm eating the skin here today. (laughs) They're just sitting around eating skin cells like taco chips, right? right? And they're like, you're not getting any of my space. So the invader comes in and they release antibiotics and kill the invader and help keep you safe. Mm-hmm. Right? We have a lot of bacteria that do that for us. Plants have that too, keep them safe from all these invaders. Uh, so we found both beneficial bacteria and harmful bacteria on the same birds. Nobody had ever seen the harmful ones or the helpful ones before. The mm-hmm. previous work just wasn't done in that way. This is why I said we can do a good, we can do a better job. We might find things they didn't find and we did. Uh, so it was very surprising for us because it was after the project was over, pretty much, that I made the discovery that, wow, there's something interesting here that we hadn't noticed. Uh, and so this is, um, um, because it's novel, uh, they hadn't seen these organisms before, uh, uh, we, we uh, sent this off to, uh, to, a, uh, to a top journal, uh, the AUK, uh, which is the number one bird journal, scientific bird journal in the world. I think, and um, uh, they've accepted it for publication. It's going to come out in print, I think, February 3rd,
0: 2016. So so the application of this is that hopefully we would maybe have a better understanding of where some of these diseases that are ruining crops or whatever might be coming from?
1: You know, the epidemiology or following how diseases move Mm. and how they act in plants is not as well developed as it is in humans. We know a lot more about human disease than we know about plant disease for obvious reasons. Uh, and so how do these microbes move around is an interesting question. Um, they blow in the wind, so you think they'd be everywhere. you think everything's everywhere. That's the old statement, the old microbiology statement. Everything is everywhere the environment selects. This goes back to Bas Beckering in the 30s and before him BioRink at the turn of the century, uh, 19- 20th century. Um, And so is everything everywhere because it can blow in the wind? It turns out that it's not. And even if you look at two salty places, they may not have the same organisms in there. So it's not everything is everywhere the environment selects, at least not all the time. And so how do these microbes really move around? How do they get on crop plants? And if you could bring birds into the equation, now you have an organism that's flying long distances that can fly 100 miles in an evening. And interacts with plants all over the place, Mm. and they can carry it from one place to another. Now, do they actually transmit it? I'm not going to say that they do, because I haven't proven that yet. I haven't shown that in any way. But the bacteria we found, the other ones that have been found that have the same name, Mm. that are in the same group, they cause plant disease. Mm. So we're testing now to see, do the bacteria we isolate, do they cause plant disease? And then we'll ask questions, okay, if they do, if they're on a feather, can they transmit to a plant? And then you might ask, if they're on a bird, can they transmit to the plant? And then you might say, can they do it in the wild and do experiments all along the board? And then eventually you might turn around and say, birds can carry disease from plant to plant. And now when you start to talk about how diseases spread, and this doesn't just have to be natural diseases. You know, bioterrorists can use these kind of things, too. They can use plant diseases to knock down our crops or knock down our wildlife. We need to understand how these things are transmitted normally so that perhaps we can tell the difference between natural and unnatural transmission and see if we're under attack. And so there's that aspect to it too. But, you know, there's a lot of agronomics here. These, um, some of these organisms destroy important crops And many of them, I mean, some of them, not the ones we're studying because we've been looking at bacteria, but on the fungal side, it's been studied um, in more detail uh, in in some ways. And some of these uh, organisms are knocking down, you know, 30% of the rice crop each year. Mm. Rice, arguably the most important crop on Earth. Half the population eats it three meals a day on the planet, something like that. Um, This is an important crop. Wheat's an important crop, too. So anything that knocks down the wheat crop and lowers yields at all has real economic interest and human health interests. And so we're, you know, again, this is kind of like that basic research. I don't know how knowing that the bacteria on the birds is going to save your wheat crop just yet. Right. But knowing that the birds are bringing it at least lets us start to think about ways or perhaps the birds are bringing something that's beneficial. They could end up being more beneficial than harmful. And so perhaps we can encourage them to carry more beneficial bacteria. Not exactly sure how. But that's how basic research eventually snowballs into something that becomes a daily product that you don't even think about using. Hmm. Uh, But when you're first doing it, you're scratching your head going, this is interesting to know, but do I need to know it? Nice to know and need to know. And with a lot of the basic research, it's not as obvious right away whether it's nice or needed. Uh, but in the long run, we pull out those pieces of the mosaic tile that then fit up on our picture, and make sense for us.
0: Uh, well, that is uh, that's fantastic. That's a uh, this has been an interesting conversation. I'm yeah. I'm I'm especially happy that we got into. Um, Uh, uh, kind of talking about the importance of science in general. Oh, me too, me too. Everything. So, uh, um, and and, and your work is very interesting. So thank you very much for being my guest, Mark Schneegert. And um, thank you all for listening. Thanks for being curious. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I was not kidding when I said that Mark had a variety of interests. He has... Several books that he's written um, that you can check out. He's written several travel guides, actually. Uh, travel guides to um, Beatles sites in Michigan, Indiana, in Chicago, all over Illinois, in, uh, in Hamburg, in France. And, and he also uh, wrote, wrote a book, um, Everyday Holiday. It's the largest Jewish calendar ever. So go to the herewearepodcast.com website and check out all of the books that he's written and uh, make sure and tune in next week as I talk with um, Narine um, just trying to make sure I get his name right here Narine Jana Um, which it took me like five times during the interview to pronounce it correctly, and then I just screwed it up again now. But I don't feel like re-recording, so we're going to plow forward. Anyway, next week we're going to be talking all about uh, paying it forward. When people choose to pay it forward and, and when they don't, and just the concept of it and psychology behind it in general really interesting episode you guys are going to love it so make sure and rate review subscribe all that good stuff and i'll talk with you then thank you Say uh, Seinfeld was, was on an island and he was blowing <laughs> Boris
1: Karloff. What would that, what would that be like?
0: <laughs> it might go something
1: like this. Oh, Mister Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love
0: giving you a blowjob. Why, Mister
1: Seinfeld, I'd love having you.